Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. loads to discuss in the company of Neil Channing. Neil, looking forward to this? I certainly am, yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen you for a while. I don't think I've seen you since Cheltenham. I noticed last week you had a, a much posher gap. Can't you just kind of put on the green screen the, the new re-backdrop? And then it would look <laughs> forever. And then it would look like we're in a classy joint. It was very nice, wasn't it? It looked very classy, yes. And, of course, the luxury of last week at Newbury was that I was able to have two people in the studio with it me. COVID regulations, however, still apply here in our Ealing HQ until the next government staging post, which means one and one. So you'll have to go out to be replaced by the much less opinionated Rafe Beckett. <laughs> the show. I'll attempt to talk for two in the uh, in the interim. But yes, I'm sure Rafe will have something to say. So that's enough for the top. We need to get straight into into yesterday. And in Rillo's demotion at the end of a dramatic Bet365 Gold Cup at Sandown Park, a race that seems to have a history of this. I think it's the third demotion in the modern era. Yeah, I particularly remember that Carl Villa Howell uh, Dawkins Express one. Uh, that, that was one of my sort of early racing memories. Yesterday I backed Kitty's light, actually. Uh, so this is uh, quite oh. painful to watch. <laughs> a proper broadside from the first past the post. In Rillo, Harry Skelton and Paul Nichols to the third past the post, Kitty's light. That meant because the stewards were satisfied that on the balance of probability, En Rillo would have finished behind Kitty's light, but for that interference, they placed him behind Kitty's light. That, of course, enabled Potterman, who was the third best horse in the race, to be awarded the race. So it's one of those where the stewards may have got it right, they may have got it wrong, depending on your opinion but no one's really very happy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, as I say, I backed Kitty's light, and uh, in the stewards' inquiry, uh, I, I quite quickly, as the stewards came up, uh, I bet odds on that Potterman would get the race. Uh, it drifted, actually, though. It went, it, I, I took about uh, just under four to five, and it went out to 11.08 after that, which, I mean, to me, it seemed like a straightforward decision for the stewards. It's obviously very tough on Enrillo, and I don't think the best horse won the race. Uh, but, uh, you know, as the rules stand, I can't see how they could have done anything else, really. Yes, because it's not the point, is it? It's neither the point to say what the jockey should or shouldn't have done. That's kind of irrelevant mm. in, in these situations, unless it's a, an example of dangerous riding. And it's also irrelevant that the best horse wasn't awarded the race in yeah, terms of the rules. I mean, as these things go, it seemed a fairly clear-cut one to me. I don't, I don't want to be after time about my odds-on stewards' inquiry bet, but... You know, if you just kind of go through the rules a stage at a time, there wasn't really anything else they could do, I would have thought. I'm imagining that's what Brant Dunshay's going to say. Well, let's find out, because he's on the line now. Brant Dunshay is the Chief Regulatory Officer for the British Horse Racing Authority. Brant, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm very well. I don't suppose you imagined that this would be about the third or fourth uh, most complicated thing you'd have to talk about this week, but, but so be it. Let's, uh, let's just go through the, the procedure that led to Inrillo being disqualified yesterday. Just put it in as simple terms as possible. Look, in simple terms, where the stewards have um, concerns that uh, interference may have affected the uh, placings, they will, as you know, hold an inquiry um, and they will look at the circumstances. And effectively, what the stewards have to decide is, you know, was there interference? Uh, be clear about who caused it and then determine, um, based on the evidence they've heard, whether or not, uh, but for the, the interference, uh, whether or not the, uh, the, the horse first across the post has actually uh, gained an advantage effectively uh, against the horse in which it interfered with. And the stewards uh, formed the view that but for the interference, uh, the third-placed horse, Kitty's Light, would have beaten home uh, and Rillo, and as a consequence, amended the placings accordingly. And when we consider these matters, 
we've got to remember the stewards are demoting, not promoting. So mm. uh, the horse that has caused interference is demoted behind uh, Kitty's light and, and subsequently uh, Potterman wins the race. Can we also talk about the, the notion of subjectivity in the stewards' room? Isn't it the case, Brant, that um, there is always an element of subjectivity in stewards' inquiries and it doesn't have to be beyond reasonable doubt, as in a courtroom. It simply has to be on the balance of probability. That's absolutely correct, Nick. And you also have to remember that you have a panel of stewards. So it is, it is a, a panel whereby the majority view uh, prevails. So um, that takes uh, the, the element of subjectivity out of it to an extent. Uh, but the, the decision has to be made based on the balance of probabilities, which is the standard applied in, in a sporting tribunal context exactly. So they have to be um, satisfied to that standard in a, in a legal context. Is there any um, notion that there could be a provision in place that would award a race like that to Kitty's Light and say, actually, Kitty's Light would have beaten both Potterman, the horse that was eventually awarded the race, and in Rillo, and therefore we can use this, use this to, to award Kitty's Light the race? Is that ever something that could be considered? But placing objections, protests they're referred to in other countries, um, they, 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 there's never a great outcome. Uh, and there are two philosophies that are applied internationally. The, the way that the British stewards and, and others around the majority of the world um, apply it, such as the example we saw yesterday, is, has been agreed that is overwhelmingly the most appropriate approach to get the best outcome under the circumstances. The alternate approach that's adopted is that in North America where um, you know, effectively they call a foul and you see the, the horse that causes the foul placed behind all the horses that it may have interfered with, such as we saw in the Kentucky Derby. These are complicated matters. To answer your question, um, it, it, pro protests or placing objections are debated at every international uh, harmonisation of rules conference with the IFHA, and we've worked hard to try and get uh, consistency across the globe. Uh, and this approach or philosophy we adopt that was applied mm -hmm. yesterday is considered the most, the most appropriate, the fairest um, in a circumstance, which is, of course, uh, there's always winners and losers. I said, and I, I wasn't at all joking at all at the beginning of the programme, that's about the third or fourth most complicated issue in your in, in trade this week. Uh, I, I spoke to Paul Struthers earlier in the week and Lydia did earlier uh, in the week as well, and, and you'll see a little bit of Lydia's interview later in the programme. Um, Benoit de la Sayette recorded a, a, a positive cocaine sample, positive sample for metabolites of cocaine in a hair sample taken after those videos appeared on, on Twitter a few weeks ago. I mean, I think it shocked the whole industry, but what is more significant is that there are now several jockeys, five since the resumption of racing, that have tested positive for cocaine, and Struthers says there's another couple on the way. He's also asked for more robust testing and more severe penalties. Are the BHA going to test more robustly and uh, penalise more harshly? Yeah, we've been uh, in uh, collaboration with the PJA on, on this for, for some time now. We've already announced publicly that we're uh, transitioning to a, a pilot program using saliva testing uh, to enable us to have results in, in real time and also conduct more tests uh, uh, annually. So um, that will complement our, our current system of collecting urine and also using hair in circumstances uh, where jockeys are looking for reinstatement or as follow-up as part of an investigation. Um, so, yes, we are, we are working hard to um, develop a more sophisticated approach to the way uh, our, our jockey testing is undertaken. And, and similarly, we've had um, discussions already with the PJA about about penalties and, and how we can strengthen them and, and even adapt a more nuanced approach relevant to the circumstances. Are you going to do more out of competition and intelligence-led testing? We already do uh, intelligence-based testing, Nick. Um, it's part of our, our program. Uh, we um, do already do out of competition testing as well, and our plan is to increase our overall activity in this space, and, and we, we already have done over recent months, uh, but uh, deploying the saliva testing uh, will enable us to enhance that even further. These six-month penalties aren't enough, are, are they? They're just, they're just not deterring riders from, from taking cocaine recreationally? I think, I think we need to look at, look at this um, 
slightly differently rather than just the deterrent perspective. I think there's, there's so much that can be done in terms of further education as well. I mean, we think about Benoit, you know, young man, 18 years of old, and I compare that to, you know, my own son who's a similar age. And uh, you need to help support these young individuals, these jockeys, uh, as they're in those formative years and learning about being a professional sports person. Yeah. Um, and part of that is understanding, you know, when to make the right decisions. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more that the, the, the sport needs to show a degree of, of empathy and make sure that rehabilitation is at the top of the priority list. But would you agree, as, as Paul Struthers did earlier in the week, that whilst certain riders, certain sports people may have addiction problems that need to be dealt with, others are simply taking this drug recreationally, knowing that they can, for want of a better phrase, play the system? Yeah, it is a concern, and that's why we're working to enhance the amount of testing we do. Uh, and yes, look at look at penalties. Um, you know, any any penalty needs to carry with it an element of both specific deterrent for the individual, but also general deterrence for others, so that they know there is a, a you know a likelihood that if they, they wish to chance the arm, they may get caught. Um, finally, Brant, while I've, I've I've got you here, I wanted to talk about Rab Havlin's twenty-one day suspension at Lingfield. Yeah. Um, he was riding a horse uh, that was second to a stable companion ridden by Frankie Dettori. They were both trained by John and Thady Gosden. I think everyone's familiar with the race now. Why did Rab Havlin get a 21-day ban, yet the horse wasn't banned and there was no censure for the trainers? So the stewards will take into account all the circumstances, and it was a lengthy inquiry. I think that's been reflected in some of the press that uh, there was quite some time between uh, the race and when... The, the decision was hand, handed down. It was a busy day. Um, they heard from from uh, the, Mr. Gosling's representatives, and um, ultimately took a decision that, under all the circumstances, uh, there there wasn't uh, reason to sanction the trainer in that circumstance uh, or penalise the horse. Um, so the penalty was was applied against um, Mr. Havlon. So. I mean, it's difficult to talk about these situations um, when every single case like this has a, has a different set of circumstances and, and the evidence differs. So, that, I mean, that's, that's the, the simple answer. I mean, people have talked about this as a non-trier. Is that actually factually incorrect? Should we be talking about this as, a, as an ill-judged ride rather than a non-trier? Is that what the BHA believes it is? It's a, well, a, a, an absence of judgment rather than a deliberate attempt not to win. Is that where you've put it? When you look at the way uh, penalties um, are determined, there's a category of negligence and a category which um, reflects deliberate intent. And the penalty that was imposed uh, on, in relation to this matter re reflects negligence rather than deliberate intent. And it's the maximum penalty for negligence, is that right? It's within the upper end of the range, that's correct. Is there a debate to be had, Brant, about a jockey's tactics being declared prior to a race, as they are in one or two other jurisdictions like Hong Kong. And I know you'd be familiar with what goes on in Australia with jockey's instructions. There's a debate to be had always. Um, the, you know, this, this again is a complex issue. Uh, you know, I've worked as a steward in that environment where trainers are obliged to declare or jockeys a change of tactics and, and sometimes they're announced and sometimes they're not at the discretion of the stewards. And, you know, you have to be very, very careful in terms of what information you put uh, in the public domain because that obviously affects the market. Yeah. So it's, it's a very complicated position to put yourself in as a steward and, and how you express and share that sort of information is incredibly important and is market sensitive. So it's, it's not as simple as saying, yes, you should do it or no, you shouldn't. It's, it's actually quite complex. Brian, thanks for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you, Nick. Good morning. Brandon Shea, the Chief Regulatory Officer from the BHA. Neil Channing and I will be discussing the second and third topics I discussed there with Brandt a little bit later in the programme. But returning to the Bet365 Gold Cup, you've heard about it from a stewarding point of view. What about if you're in it? What about if you're emotionally invested in it? You've heard from Neil Channing, the punter. What about the owner, Gareth Mall, owner of Kitty's Light, who joins me on the line now? Gareth, you've had some great days as an owner, particularly with Potter's Corner. You were about to have another one yesterday. How are you feeling about it now? Uh, hi, Nick. Uh, yeah, well, 
not really great. Um, obviously, ourselves, All Stars Racing and Richard uh, Bedford uh, went racing yesterday with, uh, as we do every other time, with a dream. And uh, I can't help but think that uh, that dream was uh, shattered for all the wrong reasons. So, uh, it, look, it's uh, I've listened to Brant very briefly there and. Uh, I'm just, I'm just as with dismay really. I just can't can't quite fathom uh, uh, how on earth the outcome uh, was brought about yesterday. So, how would you have liked to have seen the BHA redistribute the the placings? Obviously, you'd have liked to have been awarded the race, but how do you think they they should have um, handled Potterman and Enrillo? Well, I think I think uh, just going by the BHA stewards' report, you know, just a quote. Uh, it was felt that Kitty's light would have finished ahead of Imrilo, but for the interference, and therefore placements were revised as follows: first, Potterman. Now, just that alone tells us that there's clearly something wrong with with the rules. So, for me, uh, I don't think I think if I've spoken to a hundred people, as you can imagine, over the last uh, few hours and. It's, it's simply a common sense thing. You know, I, I think that the perpetrator has been dealt with as the stewards deem necessarily. Uh, then you obviously look at it. I don't really think Potterman needed to even come into the equation. Uh, it should have literally been a, a, a cause and effect. And the outcome is very simple. That if, if they felt the kiddies light should have beaten uh, in Reno had it not been for interference, then to me it's a simple, a simple solution that, that kiddies light gets awarded the race. It's it's an interesting take on it, is it? Can you not see though that that would create um, quite a, a dangerous and difficult to apply precedent? Oh, de- definitely. You know, I, I'm certainly not thinking this is very uh, this is straightforward, and it's certainly not a case of sour grapes. Uh, I just can't help but think that uh, if you ha- if you asked a hundred people to to say what's the fair outcome, which at the end of the day, the reason the rules and regulations are put in place is to come about a fair outcome, and I just can't possibly see how the how how it, it's a fair outcome, and, and you'd have to you'd have to feel for the connections of Inrilo because at the end of the day, they've now they, the, the the actual winner of the race in Potterman effectively had no chance of winning that race and even less chance of winning that race had in Rilo not drifted to its left. So effectively, the, the, the now winner uh, has been awarded the race when it never had any chance. It was the third best horse and it's now been given the race. Uh, Gareth, are you going to seek any further action on this? Uh, we're, we're certainly going to run it back, run it past sort of uh, some uh, an advisor for, for certain and, and I'm sure the connections of... of of Inrilo will do so as well. You know, uh, I just like to put on fire that the, the only saving grace in all this is that you know James Potter is actually a very good friend of mine, and I think he was as as, as confused by it all as anyone else. So it, it's just such a shame. It's such a, a pinnacle of the end of a of a testing season has ended up with us discussing again something that to me is just totally wrong. But uh, you know, it, uh, like you said, I, I'm sure this, this is not the last of it, and. Uh, uh, I, I'm certainly speaking on behalf of Richard and all our, our, the owners that we certainly feel very aggrieved by the outcome. Gareth Mall, part owner of Kitty's Light. And, and Gareth was speculating that, that Paul Nichols, trainer of the, the first past the post, now the 12 times champion trainer, and also on the score sheet three other times at Sandown, might also wish to, to consider appealing. Well, Paul's on the line now. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Nick. Um, In many respects, an amazing day again for you at Sandown yesterday, but you must have driven home wondering about the one that got away. Yeah, of course you are. You you don't like to lose races like that and the way it unfolded, but, you know, um, that's the way it happened. Um, You know, there's ups and downs in this game, and um, that was a bit of a down on a fantastic day, you know, with three other winners. So, you know, we weren't complaining. Um, Justin Rillo is obviously a very smart young horse. He's still big green and got to learn to get his head down the gallop all the way to the line without pulling up in front. Are you inclined to take it any further? I, I, do you know, I haven't had time to look at it. Uh, we've, we're at the, the, the full video has been sent down to us and then we can have a look. I, my first impressions when I saw it on my phone in the paddock was that he'd probably keep it because he first passed the post. Yes, he caused interference. There's no dispute in that. But And would... Um, um, Kitty's light have and, and yeah, it did cause interference and it caused uh, Kitty's light to stop his run. But would Kitty's life have, like, have definitely won? 
was my issue. Would he have definitely won? Now, it might have looked like Enrillo was getting tired. Enrillo wasn't getting tired. He just stopped in front. And actually, late on, he picked up again and he went away and won three quarters of length. So if Kitter's Light hadn't, there hadn't been the interference, Kitter's Light might have come to him and he'd have picked up and gone away again. I had said to Harry Skelton, if he can try not to, don't be in front, because if he's in front, he'll pull himself up. He's as green as grass. And you know what it's like from the back of the last year, that Sandown Hill. He did exactly what he thought he might do. But Harry couldn't do anything different because he travelled so well. Yeah, I mean, he's a, clearly a horse of, of immense promise. So at the moment, you're not sure whether you're going to appeal. You're still still pending. I need to look at it and, you know, look at it closely. I, I'd want to make sure I thought that we had a very, very strong case. I wouldn't just do it on a whim. Um, I just still think best horse in the race won. He actually won three quarters of length. So, yes, I'm not disagreeing he didn't cause interference. Of course, he caused interference. But would the other horse have definitely have won? You can't say for definite he would when we picked up late and won three quarters of a length. It wasn't we got beat a short head and we were tired. We were actually idling in front. So, you know, it's a difficult one. Of course it is. But I just want to have a good look at it and get some expert opinion and just think about it. But I'd want to be 100% sure that I thought we'd, we'd win the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother, as I said. But you're not ruling it out? I'm not ruling it out at the moment because I, I haven't spoke to anybody. I haven't spoke to the owners yet. Um, you know, and I get the point that, he, he, you know, in that situation that they're going to put him behind the horse, he called the interference with, and of course, Potterman was lucky, and, uh, you know, in the, with the rules, and won the race. So I can't see how, you know, kids like him think they should have won in the, in the, in the, in light of the fact that the rules were yeah. that we get demoted and the other horse won. That's just the way it is, and one has to accept it. But I still think that we're perhaps a little bit unlucky to lose it. I'm not, as I said, I'm not saying we didn't cause indifference. Of course we did, but there's arguments for all things. But end of the day, it's a great horse race. He's a lovely horse. He's going to be a you know, very smart one next year and look forward to next season with him. Still a great day for you. Um, have you seen Bryony Frost give a horse many better rides than she won gave Grenadine yesterday? No, that was, you know, it was a, a good ride. I mean, she's tactically very aware and very sharp. And she, you know, going down to the downhill fence away from the stand, she... Obviously, he woke up to the fact that Nico was gone and wasn't going to be coming back. So she, he winged that fence and she got after him and then used him as a great lead to turn him in the straight and um, nipped up Nico's in and turned around the last bend. It was all over. So that was a tactically very good ride on an improving young horse. And saving every inch of ground as well, getting up the inside after the pond fence. Yeah, exactly. And it was a proper ride. And um, I'm sure Nico won't want to look back at that again. But either way, she'd gone on the inside of him on the outside, but he was still going to win anyway. So, yeah, it was a great ride. As I said, the horse is improving and I'm thrilled with it. Um, do you think this sort of ground's crucial to him? Well, it, it just helps him a little bit, yeah. I think the big key to him, it, now he's running some better races, he's settling. He, he, he was very keen. and We had a trouble with him last to get him to just drop the bridle and relax. And he was in, in the game spirit. It, um, he, he just did not relax, and, and hence, the, I think the champion chase was a making of him. Actually, he went so fast, he didn't get absolutely keen, and he, he relaxed yesterday, and that's a making of as much as anything. But, you know, when you get a nice young horse like that, it's improving, anything's possible. And it was nice to see uh, nice to see Frodon do what he had to do. Would you concede that he didn't need to be at his best to do that? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, you know, he, it's been a challenge getting him right, Nick, because he had a very, very hard race at Charlton. You know, he, he knew he'd had a hard race. And it's just, you know, we had to go very quiet for three weeks and, you know, and then make our minds up whether he was ready enough to go and, and run well. Um, but, we, you know, this, only just this last week he's shown us all the right signs, but he definitely ran a bit flat. He, I think he found the ground a little bit tight and he, he didn't jump probably quite as well as he can, but look, he's a tough character and from the back of the last, to me, he was always going to get up because that's just him. A lot of compliments paid to the, the ground at Sandown Park yesterday. Obviously, it was on the quicker side, but most people seem pretty satisfied. Yeah, I mean, all eyes that ran yesterday will come back. None of them are jarred up at all. They're all A1. Um, I said to Andrew Cooper, you know, in the circumstances, he had done a fantastic job. So if we can produce ground like that at the end of a season, when it's dry, it's in the, it all goes well for the future. OK, 12th champion trainer's title yesterday. I mean, I could ask you the same question every year, but did it mean any more or less to you this time than, than the 11 times previously? everyone's special and you know when you have a day like yesterday that makes it even better and it's good for the team and we have just had an amazing season the number of winners I think it's 176 now and lots of prize money in the in the Covid year it's you know it's been a short year and with all the restrictions and the lack of prize money as it were it has been one of our better years probably all in all so but it was, you know it's just nice to be going forward and having lots of winners Are you quite pumped up for, for Punchestown next week in Clan Des I am, yeah. I mean, the horses are in good form. He worked yesterday morning. He looks fantastic. He loves this weather. 
He likes a better ground. Obviously, he was very good the other day, and I was, I've always felt that punches time would suit him. So, yeah, we're very much looking forward to that. So, you know, real challenge, um, but we're up for it. And one, one final question. You said yesterday that Frodon might go to the Dublin Racing Festival mm. next year. People can't accuse you of not thinking ahead, Paul. Um, is, this a, is this a sign you might throw a few more across the Irish Sea next season? It's just having the right horse for the right race at the right time. That's what it's all about. You don't want to just go there just to have runners. And, you know, quite honestly, you know, he's, he's, he's going to be geared up one run before the King George. And then after Christmas next year, if he's all OK, there's no point going for the Gold Cup. It's just he's not going to win the Gold Cup. So where do you go? And the, the, the race at the Dublin Festival for last year, there was I think it was only five or six runners. Ken Boy won it. Um, and you could argue that's a, that three miles at Leopardstown would suit him really well. So it's just something we've got in, in our mind that next year after Christmas we might aim him for that race. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Paul Nichols crowned champion trainer for the 12th time. Champion owner over the season was J.P. McManus for a 14th time. And he had a winner at Sandown Park in the Josh Gifford Memorial, courtesy of Belagas, who was trained uh, by Josh's son, Nick. It was a lovely result. And Nick joins me on the line now. Nick, morning. Morning, Nick. What a special way to, to end the season. I watched your interview last night with, with Tom Stanley and you just about held it together. Just about, Nick. Yeah, no, it was. It's a very emotional day for us. Um, very fond memories of Sandown, and and to win, to win my father's race is something I've been trying to do for a number of years now. And, and just for for those with shorter memories, there wasn't a Sandown jumps meeting without Josh Gifford from the early days as a as a champion jockey in the early '60s, right up until Sky Cab won that final race in 2003. He absolutely adored the place. He did. I think Dad was synonymous with training mainly chasers, wasn't he? And there's no better test than for a chaser than, than jumping around Sandown. So, you know, it's been, as I say, it's been a lucky track for, for us as a family in the past. And it's just nice to, to cap a season uh, winning his race. I mean, all those lovely, lovely chasers that he trained one round there, a, a whole stack of times, and particularly the, the Jim Joel horses like Dorlatch and Ballyhane and Midnight Count. Do you have any particular special memories from your youth and childhood there? Oh, I think the obvious one, Nick, was was Shady Dill uh, winning a winning a fantastic renewal of the um, of the whip bread. I think there were three of them in a line, four of them in a line, hundred yards from the line. Um, I was only well, I was very young then, but I remember being there. Sun was out, and and uh, it was a fantastic day. And I think that's really started my love affair with Sandown. And then when Sky Cab won on that, on that final day of his training career before you took over the licence the next day, and that was just magic. It was a day a bit like yesterday, weather-wise, wasn't it? It was, and, and Nick, not many people would know, but he was, he, we nearly didn't run him that day. We Very kindly, Amanda Parrott let us take, her over, take him over to Bulbrough to swim him because he was very lame. He had corns in his feet, and we literally swam him every day for three weeks just to get him there. Um, look, everything came round. He loved the ground. Um, and then Leighton sort of nursed him up the hill, and yeah, it was a bit of a fairy tale ending, really. It was. I remember Richard Johnson was riding the second and made a terrible mistake two out, and then he dropped his whip, and suddenly Sky Cab appeared from nowhere. It was just a, it was a remarkable day, and yesterday had had so many great, great echoes of it. Um, how long had you and and JP McManus and, and Frank Berry been planning the idea of winning this race? Well, I did. I, I muted it to Frank. Um, after he won there in, I think it was January or February, whenever he won, I did. I just thought, you know, off this mark, this, this, you know, it wasn't going to be high enough to get him into Cheltenham. And I just looking around, thinking, you know, I said to Frank, I'd love to, I'd love to run him. And he said, Frank, Frank said, that's fine as long as the ground's safe. Um, and so obviously, I walked the course when I got there, and I was very happy with it. They've done an amazing job with the ground. And as you said yesterday, it was JP who owned your horse that got closest to winning this race before Christopher Wren. Have you managed to speak to him since since yesterday? I haven't yet. No, no. JP, a very busy man, but um, it'd be lovely to cross paths with him sooner rather than later, certainly. And as for Belagas, Nick, he looks like the sort of horse that you could have some serious sport with next year. Well, we hope so, Nick. You know, he's got to, he, you know, when he puts it all together, he looks very progressive. Um, and, you know, he's going to go up to a mark now where suddenly, you know, some of the nicer races become an option. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll have a think um, and yeah 
the, the, there's plenty of nice pots to have a crack at if you know if he stays in one piece and you know the ground comes right for him. And it's been a, a pretty solid season, hasn't it? Particularly with the chasers. Yes, yeah, we, we you know it's small yard, Nick, um, and so it's nice when you've got one or two that you know that might turn up on a Saturday. Um, we've got a few nice youngsters I haven't run yet because the ground's gone. Um, so look, we're always trying to add to the the quality, um, but we'll. Um, it's been a it's been a better year than we've had in previous seasons for sure. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. So here were the champions of the 2020-2021 National Hunt season. Paul Nichols for the 12th time champion jockey. Harry Skelton, of course, for the first time champion conditional. Danny McMenamin and JP McManus was the champion owner, as I said, for the 14th time. An amazing season for Harry Skelton. Champion jockey for the first time. Amazing season also for his brother, Dan, who's provided him with so many of those winners. And watching events unfold, I'm sure incredibly proudly, was the man who represented his own country at the very top level for nearly three decades, Olympic gold medalist Nick, who is with me now. Nick, morning. Good morning. Um, you've achieved so much through your, your sporting career, but watching on yesterday, just try and... Try and describe your, your feelings as a, as a father. Well, I just think, um, you know, I'm incredibly proud of, of both the boys, what they've done. Um, and watch Harry go up there and get that trophy yesterday was probably the proudest moment of my life. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something that uh, uh, I know Harry's been dreaming of from when he was little. And, um, you know, I'm so happy for him. And for Dan, I mean, like you say, Dan's provided all the winners, and I think they're a great team, a good pair, and they get on tremendously well. That, perhaps more than anything else, perhaps more than, than any achievement, must make you very proud as a father, the way that they seem to be able to bounce off each other, work well together, have a, have a real closeness. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing with Harry is he's in the yard there every morning. You know, he's not a jockey that goes in, rides out one day, and then, uh, you know, he doesn't come back again for six days or, you know, like that. He's there every morning, quarter to seven. He's there doing the board with Dan and, and, and the other members of the staff. Tom Messenger is a great, um, you know, his assistant trainer, Nick Pierce. I mean, there's so many people in that office in the morning organising things. And, uh, you know, I think that plays a big part. And Harry rides all, he knows all the horses one by one. And he gets on brilliantly with all the staff. So I think it's a great team effort and um, I think you know it shows and how it's paid off when Dan and Harry were growing up was it always inevitable to you that they would they would end up as as competitors in in horse sport well I think obviously when I was riding going to all the shows they obviously always came with me when they could when the school holidays or even if they bunked off school or whatever they they'd come show so they're always around the horses they always did their ponies. They they looked after them. They mucked them out. They rode them. They cleaned the tack. They always had a lot of a good work ethic. And um, you know, I think Harry, from a very small age, like I, I was very interested in the racing. Obviously, he had a horse with David Nixon years ago, certainly strong. And my father before that, he had a horse with David. So I was always <clears throat> interested in the racing. And um, so when I was watching the racing on the Saturday, Harry would be there. On the on the um, the sofa, he'd be beating the sofa up, and uh, he said, "I'm going to do that one day, Dad." And I said, "That's great, Harry." I said, um, "I hope you do." And he, he went down. He was a great. Actually, he was a, he, he could have done my job really well, Harry. He rides very well. He, he wouldn't know if he gets on a jumper now. He wouldn't know that he was a jockey. You know, he, he really he can adapt. So yeah, he was always going down that route. Dan um, did a few point to point in. I, I trained a point to pointer, and Dan was really into the rugby and into the school. He was going to university. And I think if, if all this hadn't have been for John Hales, I don't probably think Dan would have gone into training because when John had horses with Paul, he um, said to me, oh, would Dan like to go down for a week's uh, school holiday to ride out? Because he obviously with the pointers. And I said, yeah, I think he would. So um, he went down and he came back nine and a half years later. So I think we've got, you know, the Hales family to thank for all that. And they've been very, very supportive of me. 
and the boys and Paul. I mean, you are a, a, a redoubtable competitor. You just never, never stopped striving for the best. Do you, do you look back on those days where Dan and Harry were with Paul Nichols, and and admire Nichols for what 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 he has in in a sort of similar type of spirit? Well, I think so because Paul's obviously. I mean, when I when they were with me, um, they saw the competitiveness. Um, the fight, the work ethic, and then obviously with Paul, and, and he, it shows with Paul. I mean, he's been champion trainer 12, 13 years now, and I think he installed that into Dan. And so it all, um, as I say, I mean, it, it all come together. And uh, when Dan came back to train here, you know, he knew his job, he'd done his apprenticeship, and, uh, you know, he gave Harry the leg up, which was very, well, you could say brave of him because. That year, he'd only ridden eight winners. And then to explain to the owners that, um, you know, Harry was going to be the jockey, my brother, and, uh, you know, it was a big move and a, a brave move. But, you know, it's, it's worked out. I mean, it really was. Because, yeah, it wasn't as though Harry was the most fashionable jockey at the time. And he's telling big player owners who are spending 100, 200, 300 grand at the sale, no, this is the guy that's riding. And if, if you don't like it, there's plenty of other stables around the country. Well, I did say that to Dan in the beginning. I said, whatever you do, you've got to stick by him. And any owners come, it's Harry's riding them, and that's it. And uh, that's how it's been. And, um, you know, it's, it's Dan put a lot of faith in him, and it's worked out. It's worked out incredibly well. We spoke to Harry last week, um, and he said that he told a nice story that, that, when they were, that when they were younger, if they heard your... He said he was living in a... Was it a... Um, a sort of log cabin at the time at your place, and if they heard the if they heard the, your car coming down the drive, he'd quickly hop up and make sure he was doing something because you just weren't someone who could ever <laughs> countenance the idea that they could just be kind of loafing around not doing anything. Were you were you really quite a hard taskmaster? Well, I was. I, I guess I was because I, that's how I got brought up, and I think you know it, it is all about the work, and uh, they were never. He, he was always up and about, Harry, and so was Dan. I mean, they, they, you never had to, you know, get them out of bed. They'd be up and gone. And, um, you know, I think that really, I try to install, I, that was installed in me, so I, I passed it on, and so I'm a little bit um, OCD about it all. But, um, you know, it, it's worked, and the, the place is working well, and uh, they're doing a great job, so it couldn't have been that bad. And Nick, just tell us a, a little bit about your sort of day-to-day -day life at the moment, how you're dividing your time with the jumpers and supervising a little bit with the racing. And uh, how, how, are you, how are you getting along at the moment? Well, it's been, I mean, all winter I've been in Florida with the jumpers and then yeah. came back obviously about three weeks ago, a month ago, to you know, help support Harry in his final uh, kick for the title. And um, to be honest, me now here at home, I don't have any horses because the problem with the with the Brexit and uh, the travel, you know, traveling across the borders, uh, we've uh, got all the horses in Holland. So uh, it's quite, it's empty at the moment, but I'm, I'm going to lock it up when I go away because I have 60 boxes and I'm afraid when I come back, there might be 60 racehorses in there. <laughs> you wouldn't mind that too much, would you? Uh, no, not really. But don't, I hope he's not watching and listening though, because uh, I'm sure they'll be down in no time. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. OK, let's, let's reflect and pivot back to flat racing with a look at Friday's card at Sandown Park because it threw up some very interesting uh, talking points that we'll come to in a few moments' time. But on the track, this is a very, very smart horse. We knew this last year, Palace Pier, but it was good to have confirmation, Neil Channing, that everything was in good working order as he brushed aside three inferiors imperiously. Yeah, and John Gosden obviously uh, came out beforehand and, and said uh, that he felt like the horse might uh, come on quite a lot for the run. Uh, still went off four to 11 and still hacked up uh, in a four-runner race. So, um, I don't know, did we learn that much? He's still got a leg in each corner and uh, it's a good horse, obviously. Mm. He's a very smart horse. He'll be turning up in all the Group 1s mm. over a mile this season. What it did confirm to me, however, was that he could, he could act fluently 
on a slightly quicker surface. Though don't be fooled because often at this Slight, meeting it's slightly quicker surface. Slightly, I don't know. I that's think what it, I mean. I think that surface might not have been all that no. quick. I, I mean, the, the times were saying soft. The watering can had definitely come out hard. Yeah. Just on, just on that, you know, we have that brilliant evening meeting, the Brigadier Gerard meeting. Wouldn't it be an idea? I don't know. I'm probably an idiot. I am an idiot for sure. But um, couldn't that be a Thursday night? And then they've got all day Friday and much longer to stick some water on ready for the jumps on Saturday. And they don't have to have this problem of the flat trainers saying, well, it's OK, we kind of understand. They've got to give us a, a soft ground meeting. Uh, you know, a lot of horses on Friday seem to not really run their race. And the, the, they were a bit strung out, some of those races on Friday. It certainly has been a theme, hasn't it, since the jumps card became more of a priority mm. on the Saturday. I mean, I'm not having a go at Andrew Cooper. I think he's a brilliant class, of course, actually, one of, one of my favourite ones. But um, And he's a good communicator with the public generally. But it did feel to me like we were kind of led to believe that was going to be much better ground than it was on Friday. And, and perhaps looking at the times, looking at the way they finished, uh, it was a little bit, perhaps a bit soft. Nothing soft about... Waldkönig, he looks a, a horse that is, is going places, judged on, on his victory in the Gordon Richards stakes. Look at his action, however, he doesn't want the ground too quick, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I was half expecting Hookham to pick up and uh, about two out. He seems to be going really well. With little bit, he ran a little bit flat. Uh, the seconds run a really good race. Um, the yeah. old desert encounter. Yeah, what yeah, a yeah. Smashing horse he is. Yeah, that was tremendous. Um, but yeah, this is this is a reasonably impressive performance, I suppose. But uh, again, they did f finish a bit. You know, it was quite a long distance between first and last. Uh, he's the sort of horse that's just going to keep getting better mm. as a, a close relative of the art winner Waldgeist. Yeah. From a really good German family. Stout. Yeah. Yes. Yes. A tick. Stout pedigree. A yeah, tick yeah, yeah. Why coming? not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what did you make of the Derby trial? Going into it, we thought this was one of the deeper, stronger <laughs> Sandown Classic trials we've seen. And even though the, the winner was trained by a top handler in William Haggis, yeah. given a very good ride by Tom Marquand, Alon Kerr went off a huge price. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I guess in terms of saying that the, the race looked deep beforehand, it looked very competitive beforehand, but I still think if you ask people beforehand, they would have said, we're unlikely to see the Derby winner, just because th that is the nature of the Sandown trial, isn't it? We do it doesn't often produce the Derby winner. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of mad that Tom Marquand could be, what was it, 40s into 25s or something. I mean, he, he, he's just, he's another one. You, if you don't really have a big interest in a race and you switch on, him or Holly are winning it, basically. Uh, it's just routine, isn't it? He only had a double yesterday, he had to go home, and he's lost two against her. On the on the title race, yeah, it's, it's, they're amazing. Hang on, the title race hasn't started yet. Oh, sorry, whatever. You know what I mean. Come though. on, tune in. Oh God, I don't know. I don't really. Follow I know these it's confusing, title. but these it's title races that matter. Well, I thought the flat season started about six months ago. Although it did, and then it started again on Lincoln Day. And <laughs> although then it gets we, another reason. Although we next had week. three jumps meetings on Friday for some reason or another, I don't understand. When why. does the flat season start? <laughs> it's all mad. It's yeah. crazy. Uh, they, they have. The sport is insane, isn't it? I mean, we literally had three jumps meetings on Friday. What the hell is that all about? <laughs> None of them got any runners because they're all running on good to firm ground. As I've said <laughs> a few times already on this show, hold that thought because I've got, I've got a special segment <laughs> lined up for you a little bit later. I won't have anything to say in now, a few points. Friday, um, Lydia Hislop had her work cut out because um, we were right off the back of the um, news that Benoit de la Sayette, as I referenced with with um, Brandon Dunshare at the beginning of the, the show, had tested positive for a metabolite of cocaine in a, in a hair sample. And then, um, to, to compound a bad week for the Gosden jockeys team, uh, Rab Havlin got a 21-day ban um, for failing to ensure the best possible placing on his mount behind a stable companion, uh, Lingfield, on a, on a debutant called Stoll. So Lydia caught up with John Gosden and the Professional Jockeys Association Chief Paul Struthers on both these issues, and we will start uh, with the Havlin ban. The announcement made that Robert Havlin will not be pursuing his appeal against the ban he picked up at Lingfield earlier this week on Stoll. He said he was going to take your advice, the, the Associated's advice. What was it? Um, the advice, I, I can't really go into the, the, the nature of the exact advice we gave him. But we looked at the race for him. Did we think there were some grounds to appeal? We did. Um, but Rab 
we feed back to them like we always do. We're always very honest with them. We don't always tell them what they want to hear. We tell them what we believe. And Rab called me this morning and he'd made the decision himself not to appeal. OK. And so this is a process that you've introduced for how long? They're sort of being able to sort of talk through and advise jockeys whether it's worthwhile to do it? Well, that's been happening certainly in all my time here, which mm. is just over nine years now. Um, it's got a, an awful lot easier since the BHA introduced their video, their online video library. So it used to be a process where we'd have to meet a jockey somewhere who'd have a DVD and we'd have to get it. I'd have to play it, record it on my phone, send it to Rory McNeese, who's the main solicitor we use for advice. Um, so so the, the, the we transfer files that we get from BHA just make life so much easier and, and massively speed the process up. Rab Havlin's ride uh, at Lingfield, for which he got that lengthy ban, and has decided not to appeal. He mentioned in his, in his evidence that uh, his instructions were not to use his whip in the race. Is that uh, an instruction you give often? Horses first time out is the instruction I always give. My father, I remember a jockey walking into the paddock here with a two-year-old first time out and he came in with a whip and my father took it off. Look, I don't like to see young horses necessarily. The reason to have it if they start veering off a course, we had rather a lot of evidence of that in the first day, or if they're playing being a cult, not bothering to race it, just come on now, concentrate. But on the whole, I do not like the stick used on a horse first time out. It's a sort of rule of mine. So he followed my instruction as he always does. He's a great horse and good jockey. I think in terms of the suspension, he could appeal, he might get a few days off, but he's still going to start stuck with some days. And I think probably what people don't clock is how hard these jockeys work. I mean, he is up and down the country, dry, you know, riding work for me at 5.30 in the morning, and then driving to Newcastle, coming back, getting back at 11.30 midnight, and riding again the next morning at track work, and then on to the races. And he hasn't had a day off, probably for the guts of 20 months. It's an interesting one, and it's a debate that's come up many times about riding instructions on, on, on wider issues. And, and I remember my time at the BHA, particularly around integrity issues and riding instructions. I mean, the bottom line is the rules of racing do not require a jockey to use the whip. There are some horses where a trainer will say, don't use the whip. You would rarely see the whip used much on first time out horses for obvious reasons. And then as you're, you're well aware, we're having this big debate and, and whilst the consultation's on hold at the moment because of COVID, there's gonna be a big debate about the whip. You basically called for more testing. That's, you think that that is necessary for the safety and the good reputation of the sport. Would you mind expanding on those? Yeah, thoughts? sure, and it's not a new call. It's a call we've been making for the first few years in private with the BHA. And the good news is there is gonna be a lot more testing. I might have had a bit of an argument with the BHA over whether they did or didn't cut the testing budget during a period when we were asking for more. Yeah. I'm pretty confident they did. But equally, and I listened to your comments as well on, on Nick's show, and you're right, if people, not us, I hasten to add, are putting pressure on the BHA and the their budgets, of the sport, yep. you have to slice somewhere. The fact they chose to slice in testing does annoy me, but that's in the past now. They have put more budget in this year. I don't know the exact budget, but I know they've put more in. And at some point in May, and I expect it will be sooner rather than later, the BHA, and they've been working in conjunction with us on this, will be piloting saliva testing. Now, the reason that's important, twofold, one, you get very quick results. Yep. 10 to 15 minutes, you will know whether a jockey is positive or negative. If they're positive, they'll be immediately stood down. Now, the nature of the testing you won't be able to test everyone before they have their first ride because you need to make sure they're nil by mouth for a period before they do the saliva test. Um, but there'll be an immediate suspension. There'll be a B sample that will then go off to the lab to be counter-analyzed. With urine testing, they all go off to the lab to be counter-analyzed and they have to be stored, etc. So a combination of increased budget plus a switch to saliva testing and I wouldn't know the figures, but I think we'll get them over the next two or three weeks. Whether you can increase your volume of testing by three, fourfold, I think that's hugely important. I think the shift towards utilising hair testing and, and, and the cost of it and the budgets and everything else, it will be selective. But just that selective element alone is so, it's, it is really important, I think, because if you've done it, and it, look, when you're going bored like me, you don't have any hair. But it doesn't have to be head hair, mm -hmm. you know, so you can take hair anywhere from the body. As long as there are two or three centimetres of hair, it's that historical marker, albeit for a short period of time, two or three months, as to whether you've been taking something you shouldn't. And 
whilst I accept and have acknowledged for some time there is a problem, I believe it's, it's still a very small problem. The fact that our members are getting cross with me because they feel I've been too pastoral, I would challenge that because they don't know necessarily what goes on behind the scenes with this plan for saliva testing, etc. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. Oh, I sort of, I don't, I sort of feel now I can, I can push the show to a different place. Neil Channing, what entertainment he always is. My thanks to him. I'm joined now by a Luck on Sunday regular. It is great to welcome him back to the studio. Classic winning trainer, Rafe Beckett. He's currently the chair of the Flat Trainers Committee on the National Trainers Federation. He is also the president-elect of that body. And I'm very interested to know how his presidency might impact upon that organisation on the Horsemen's Group and where he feels now the sport is going as we approach the 11th month of racing since the resumption on June the 1st. Rafe Beckett, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Good to see you again. Last time we had an exchange on this programme, it was um, it was at times quite a, a spiky one as we approached the resumption of racing last year on the, on the 1st of June. You, you stuck your neck out during that period and were pretty critical of the, of the BHA under its then boss, Nick Rust. How do you reflect on that passenger play now? Uh, I don't regret any of it. Um, I think it would have played out very differently if uh, everything that was written in that email exchange had been leaked. Right. When you say it would have played out very differently, how well, do you mean? Um, we might have to refresh people's memories here because this was a, an email exchange that was part leaked to the Daily Telegraph at the time. Um, and you were quite heavily involved at the time, but you were the only trainer who was really prepared to come out and talk, talk publicly about it. Yeah, that's not entirely true. Mark, as you remember, did. Mark Johnson, Johnson did yeah. as well. Uh, I remember, what I remember be most about it was that uh, three trainers' comments were leaked. Mm -hmm. The fourth one wasn't. And I'm certain that if his comments had been leaked, the reaction from the media would have been very different because of the media's relationship with him. So the media's relationship with that said trainer, who was part of a critical body of trainers who were criticising the then BHA leadership because he was left out of the league, you felt that the media were quite, quite happy to attack you on the BHA's behalf, but would have taken perhaps the horseman's side had it been for his I don't knowledge know if, of his I don't know if, if they'd taken the horseman's side, but they would have taken a very different uh, view. It would have been a much more objective view. OK. In, in, I think, you know, Mark and I would both agree on that. Uh, the third trainer withdrew his comments. The BHA asked me to withdraw my comments and apologise. The funny thing I always thought, well, the amusing thing about that was that uh, they didn't ask Mark. <laughs> they didn't even tell Mark. I told Mark that it was being leaked. OK. Um, but anyway, that's, it's, it's history now, but that's, that's, uh, that's, I, I'm confident in that opinion. It's history, but it's an important, it's an important point of context, because at the time, you and other people uh, who are practitioners were trying to force a course of action, really, and to try and, um, I guess, energise the BHA as we approached the resumption of racing. Do you think you made a difference to getting us started on June the 1st? Uh, my personal view is that there are people who believe that we did. I, I would take a more objective view again. You know, it's, it was, certainly wasn't about what, uh, what about Mark and I. My personal view is that, that France starting first was a greater factor. And I also felt that um, uh, you'll remember that the Premier of Victoria commented publicly that the Queen had congratulated them on continuing racing through through the pandemic and uh, he made that point in an interview and 
my personal view is that that carried most weight. That's a, a very interesting observation. Do you think when racing did resume on, on June the 1st that the BHA did a, a good job? I think people in the BHA did a good job, yes. So who's done well? I think Richard Wayman did very well. You know, as you remember, Nick, I was... Charlie Parker and I were... For, Charlie Parker for the owners and I were part of the resumption group. I think... Uh, I think that, that, as I said at the time, there was a disconnect between uh, the chief executive and the executive underneath... Uh, I think that there are certain people who did a did a very good job. Richard, for one, I think Brandt did a good job as well. I think uh, Dr. Jerry Hill did a good job. You know, there were lots of them who 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 were who were punching, you know, way up, if not above their weight, doing their very 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 best to get it going again. And I. Um, uh, you know, I saw that firsthand. Mm -hmm. So, the sport, in some senses, has been luxuriating in the notion that it, the industry, has done a good job keeping the show on the road mm. since the first of yeah. June. Um, beyond that, and underneath that um, veneer, where are the significant cracks? Do you think? Oh. Well, I think that. Uh, I think that the BHA uh, is has has too many people for a start. Three hundred and fifty people is employees is too many. It's an it's become an unwieldy body, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Uh, the I think the race courses are doing the sport a disservice, not least because any initiative that is suggested is blocked by them. Um, from the, the best example I have of that is last year, you'll remember that on resumption, there were only allowed to be two stalls handlers pushing mm -hmm. horses in. Initially, yeah. Initially. And you'll remember that there are a bunch of older handicappers who are refusing to go in the stalls. Growl, on his 50-second start on the day racing resumed at New, uh, Newcastle, refused to go in. So as a, as a result of this, it was clear that there weren't enough, the, the, the loading process was taking too long and horses were refusing to go in because they were hanging around too long watching other horses taking longer to load than normal. That's what horses do. Right. So I proposed that from 14 runners and up, there should be two extra stalls handlers. It should go from 11 to 13. And the racecourses blocked it. Why? Wait. The BHA then said that they would pay for a month's trial. And the racecourses still blocked it. Because it was set a precedent that would then cost them money. But that's, the, a, that's a fact, Nick. But racecourse executives, particularly those, and we talked with Richie Galway earlier, particularly those whose business model is based on big crowds, big festivals, are losing money hand over fist during COVID, they'll say, look, you can't expect us to be, to well, be dipping in here when we've got no money. And some of these race courses have, have told you how close they've been to going to the wall. The, Do you really tax, believe that? Perth and Newton Abbots of this world. Do you really believe that? Tell me why I shouldn't believe that. Because they're getting between 10,000 and 12,000 a race. Sorry, yes, 10,000 and 12,000 a race. They're getting around a thousand quid a runner. That hasn't stopped. They're not having to put in place the infrastructure to have a crowd. Some of these small independent racecourses have done extremely well. They'll deny that, but they are doing very well. Out of, they have done very well racing through COVID with no crowds. And have you got data and evidence yes. to back that up? Yeah. So put some meat on the bones for me, Ray. 
And for those who aren't familiar with how race courses are financed, just give us a bit more detail. We, I came on this program two years ago and said that they were getting £1,000 a runner. That hasn't changed. You know, they're still getting that. Without a crowd, you don't have to, you don't have, to have the, the, the employees to attend, to, to look after a crowd of sometimes only 1,000 or 1,500 people, sometimes less. That's saving them a lot of money. They use the furlough scheme extremely well. Arc, and the idea in particular, we know that you know the ground at Lingfield and Yarmouth on resumption last year was, you know, they had to row back pretty quickly to get it in in uh, suit, uh, fit for racing, you know, because they laid off groundsmen, etc. Um, you know, that was a fact. They admitted that. Um, <clears throat> so. You don't have to be a mathematician, and I'm not, to 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 work out that you know the the big independents have suffered, undoubtedly. And when you're talking uh, big independents, you're talking the York, likes of York, Goodwood, Goodwood Newbury. Yeah, they've suffered, but I don't believe for a second that the Jockey Club or or Arc or the small independents have suffered. Not for a second. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.